0: Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for um, this very word that is um, from your mouth. It is full of authority and power, it has the ability to change us from the inside out. When we listen and we obey, and we allow it to accomplish what it is you want to accomplish in our lives. Speak to us this morning from your word, O God. Help us to have uh, attentive ears, a willing spirit, that we put into practice quickly so we do not forget what it is we heard this morning. For your glory and by your enablement, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Back in 2001, people in London were asked to choose their ideal dinner party guest. And the majority of people picked Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill certainly was known for his wit and his bluntness. The story is told of, on one occasion, a a crabby lady got on one of the smoking seats on an open car in the subway. Next to her was Winston Churchill smoking his cigar. The lady fussed and wriggled and grew angrier and angrier and and finally couldn't stand it any longer. And she looked at Churchill scornfully and she said to him, Sir, if I were your wife, I'd put poison in your coffee. (laughs) And Winston Churchill replied, ma'am, if I were your husband, I'd drink it. (laughs) Zinger. He was indeed given to some great comebacks. When a member of the parliament said to him, Mr. Churchill, must you fall asleep while I'm speaking? And Churchill replied, no, it's purely voluntary. (laughs) Whether one liked or or, or disliked Churchill, he certainly had a way of kind of stirring things up. Well, in the book, Dinner with Churchill, author Cedar Steltzer has this to say about the unorthodox and and entertaining Churchill who who loved to do negotiating over meals. And she says this. She says, At breakfasts, luncheons, picnics, and dinners, Churchill never conformed to the Regency rules regarding the banning of politics as a proper conversational topic over meals. Instead, he would turn mealtimes into information exchange seminars, international summits, intelligence gathering operations, gossip fests, speech practice sessions, and even semi-theatrical performances. And Stelzer concludes and says this, It must have been thrilling to have been present. It must have been thrilling to have been present. Dinner with, with Churchill would have been an experience not to be forgotten. Well, we're invited to another dinner party that would not have been forgotten among all those present that day. In case you ever wondered what it must have been like to have dinner with Jesus, Mark is going to describe it for us. Because this dinner party turns into a scandal. A scandal of grace. We began last week our sermon series on the gospel of Mark. And as mentioned last week, the the book of Mark moves at a, a very fast pace. It's quite relevant, for that reason, to all who want to follow Christ in in this world, real world, in which we live. It ties directly to our mission as a church of, of making disciples as we answer, what does a disciple of Christ, a follower of Christ, look like? Well, we're going to be surfacing several marks of a disciple as we move through selected portions of of the gospel of Mark. And if you haven't read through the gospel of Mark in a while, or or perhaps never at all, I would invite you to sit down and even read it through in one sitting. For even a slow reader, it would take less than two hours to do it. And if you approach this book with an open mind, you might be surprised how it transforms your life. Several years ago, one of the world's renowned scholars of the classics, Dr. E.V. Rihu, completed a translation of Homer into modern English for the Penguin Classics series. He was 60 years old, and he had been an agnostic all his life which meant he doubted the existence of God. Well, the publisher who had him do this, this Homer into modern English soon approached Dr. Rihu again and, and asked him to translate the Gospels. And when Rehu's son heard this, he said, it's going to be interesting to see what my dad will make of the four Gospels, but it will be even more interesting to see what the four Gospels make of my dad." You didn't have to wonder very long, by the way, within a year's time, I.bi e. Ruhu, the, the lifelong agnostic, responded to the gospels he was translating and became a committed follower of Jesus Christ. Oh, the, the transforming power of God's words. And so, so as we come to the Gospel of Mark, the inviting question is, what will it make of me? What will it make of me? And just as E.V. Rehu's conversion was a surprise to many, so is the case of another true story we're looking at this morning in Mark chapter 2. And I hope you're there. Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Vern read it for us earlier in the service. It's on page 708 if you're using the Bibles in front of you. Mark 2. But here's the takeaway for this morning. I'm going to give it to you up front. The takeaway for this morning is this. If our Christianity Christianity doesn't reach into the lives of others, it is a faith with a hole in it. If our Christianity doesn't reach into the lives of others, it is a faith with a hole in it. Listen to these words of a president of a prominent international relief organization. He says this, Being a Christian requires much more than just having a personal and transforming relationship with God. It also entails a public and transforming relationship with the world. Now get this. He says, if your personal faith in Christ has no outward expression, then your faith has a hole in it. As we began our series last Sunday, it was noted that the the gospel is not only about going to heaven, it's about going into the world. Jesus didn't say, follow me and I'm going to take you to heaven right now. He said, follow me, I'll send you out as my witnesses. See, if our faith is just Jesus and me, then it's a faith with a hole in it. It's about Jesus and mission. It's about Jesus and others. We follow Jesus, not for what we gain from it. I mean, yes, it is part of that, for sure, what we gain from it, of course. But we're to follow Jesus for the sake of others. Mark 2, 13 through 17, here's my outline for this morning. We're going to first look at the call of Levi. And then secondly, contact with sinners. Thirdly, criticism of the smug or self-righteousness. And then lastly, comeback of Jesus. So we're going to look at the call of Levi, contact with sinners, criticism of the smug, and then comeback of Jesus, which was far more profound than any of Churchill's. Call of Levi. Let's look at that first. It all begins with something that no one could see coming. Jesus walks up to Levi the tax collector, and he summons him to follow him. Look at your Bibles. Mark 2, verse 14. Verse 14. He says, As he, Jesus, walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. Now, in that mental list that we all carry around in our minds of those who would likely come to Christ and those who are not likely to come to Christ, Levi is on the bottom of that list, the one most unlikely to come to Christ. He's at the bottom. Why would he be the most unlikely candidate to follow Jesus? He was a tax collector. Tax collector. Now, no doubt that just the sound of of tax collector, it doesn't give you a lot of warm fuzzies, does it? (laughs) It really doesn't. But it's really even worse than how we might think of tax collectors. Because in that time, to be a tax collector meant you worked for the Roman establishment. And every time a Jew passed by this booth, Levi's booth, or other tax collectors' booth, it was a fresh, invisible reminder, painful reminder of Roman domination and oppression. Now, it gets even worse. These these tax collectors not only collected taxes required by the Roman government, they were known to collect even more money that they would then keep for themselves. I mean, they were corrupt, they were greedy, they were wealthy, and they practiced extortion. We don't really have any modern day equivalent to how despicable it was in that day for the Jew to see a tax collector. They were considered traitors to the Jewish people, like one might be to our country. They were despised by the Jewish population. They were even shunned by their own families. They were were like the lepers of their day who were outcasts socially. No, no, even worse than lepers, because that was a disease inflicted upon its victim, whereas tax collectors chose this position for themselves. That day, Jesus encounters Levi, a rip-off artist. Now, this is the one Jesus chooses for his team. Jesus doesn't appear to draft wisely. Four fishermen and now a tax collector. This is absolutely stunning. Equally stunning is Levi's response. The end of verse 14 says, Levi got up and followed him. Do you know the impact of this one decision? For the four fishermen to leave their nets and follow Jesus was substantial. As I pointed out last week, uh, the fishermen in that day likely walked away from a lucrative business. There's nothing subpar about their decision. But even more impressive to me is Levi's response. Because for Levi, there was no turning back. The fisherman could return to fishing, but Levi could never return to the position as tax collector. That is, if this following Jesus stuff was for real. And it was for real. Now, by the way, we're better acquainted with Levi's changed name of Matthew. Matthew, writer of the gospel of Matthew. Now, why was it changed and and who changed it? We, We don't really know. But well, the name Matthew meant, interestingly enough, "gift of God." God did make a beautiful thing of His life, as He went from Levi, the rip-off artist, to Matthew, the gift of God. It's the same kind of change God wants to make in in our lives. Remember all this pain? I wonder if I'll ever find my way. We, saw, we heard it at the beginning in the video. I wonder if my life could really change it all. Oh, you make beautiful things. You make beautiful things out of the dust. You make beautiful things. You make beautiful things out of us. I hope we believe that. Because whatever you once were known for, he can beautifully change all of that. By answering the call of God on your life. There's a legend from the sheep counties of of England tells of centuries ago that, that two men were arrested and convicted for stealing sheep. Stealing sheep. And the magistrate sent them to prison for several years and decreed that the letter S, the letter S should be burned into their foreheads with a hot iron. He determined that no one should ever forget their cry. Well, when the jail terms were ended, one of the two left the area and was never heard from again. But the second man, he became greatly sorry for his thievery and stealing sheep. And having met Jesus, he dedicated his life to God, and he chose to remain in the community and offer himself in service to the people. And as the years passed, everyone noticed the genuine changes in this man's life. He freely gave to others to aid them in their sickness and their family crises, their, their difficulties in their work. Soon, no one remembered or spoke about his, his earlier crime of, of sheep stealing. They spake, spoke only of all he had given them out of a changed heart of grace and love. Well, the legend concludes with a conversation of two small boys, because of their young age, knew nothing of the past. Seeing the now aged man pass by, one boy asked the other, "Why do you think he has an S on his forehead? Why does he have that S on his forehead?" I'm not sure," the second boy replied. "But from what my mom says about him, I think it must mean saint. Saint. That's it. The genius of the gospel is that no matter how badly you have blown it." No matter what you've done in the past, you are reachable and restorable by God's grace. And no matter what letter you feel you carry around for all to see, God in Jesus Christ can make you new, a saint who finds righteousness in Christ. Because no one's beyond his reach. We invite him in. Will you view others with a big S on their chest, as possible candidates to be reached by the God who specializes in doing the spectacular, the call of Levi. The call of Levi. Secondly, contact with sinners. Now it gets real interesting here as we go through this, contact with sinners. Levi's change was so dramatic and so genuine, he did what he knew to do. He threw a party. You see, when one is truly changed by Christ, you don't simply add Jesus to all of your activities. He changes those activities. One commentator on this section of Scripture says, The call and response of these fishermen, and now Levi, should shatter our comfortable world of middle-class discipleship. Disciples are not simply those who fill the pews at worship, attend an occasional Bible study, and offer to help out in the work of the church now and then. Now get this. He says, when one is hooked by Jesus, one's whole life and purpose are transformed. See, if it isn't that, there's a hole in our faith. What does a disciple look like? Well, it means to radically reorient your life around Jesus and his work in the world. A mark of disciple is involvement, contact with messy, difficult, lost people who need the touch of Jesus on their life. Verse 15 says, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him. We need to slow down there. Tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Now, Luke's account of, the, of this same story, he speaks of this being a banquet and that all were reclining. Now, that may not mean much to us, but when they, when they would speak of, of them reclining, it was the posture for a long, relaxed meal. They were going to hang out for a while. And this thing was a feast, by the way. Well, who was there? Well, considering Levi's lifestyle prior to, prior to meeting Jesus, who's he going to invite? Who were the kind of people a guy like Levi would be hanging out with? Other tax collectors and those considered sinners, unclean, misfits, the kind of People, quite honestly, we like to label. The kind of people we brand with a letter. See him over there. He's divorced. Oh, that family? Three different dads. She? She's trouble. Fill it in. True story is told of a man who ministered to the down and out people in the city of Chicago. On one occasion, he encountered a prostitute who was in wretched straits, homeless, her health failing, and she was unable to even buy food for her two-year-old daughter. Her eyes were were filled with tears as she confessed how she even put her own two-year-old daughter at risk as she did whatever she could to support her drug habits. This man could, could hardly bear hearing the sordid details of her story. He just sat there in silence, not really knowing what to say to her. But last he, he spoke up and, and he asked her if she had ever thought of going to church for help. A look of astonishment crossed her face and she replied, Church? Why would I ever go there? They just make me feel even worse than I already do. How did Jesus, the sinless perfect God man, attract the notoriously imperfect? Why did the down and out of his day flock to Jesus? And I ask, do they still feel welcomed among his followers? What is keeping us from following in his steps today? I mean, what would it take for the church, God's people, to become that place where tax collectors and prostitutes and and all those people rough-around-the-edges type people would feel welcomed? Jesus is intentionally having dinner with a bunch of non-religious, talk-of-the-town kind of people, some who everyone loved to hate. As it's been said, If you wish to communicate the truth of Scripture, it's essential that you identify with the subject. We see here why Jesus went to parties. It was to identify with them, not in their sinful practices, for Jesus was sinless, but to go where they were. Because it was unlikely that any of these guys were ever showing up in the synagogue anytime soon. Matter of fact, tax collectors were banned from entering the synagogue. I love the words of C.T. Studd, the brilliant young Englishman who gave away a fortune that he might go out into the forests of Africa. He put his philosophy this way. He said, some like to dwell within the sound of church and chapel bell, but I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. That's what Jesus did. He had contact with sinners, and not everyone looked favorably on it. Mark Twain put it. Having spent considerable time with good people, I can understand why Jesus liked to be with tax collectors and sinners. (laughs) Criticism of the smug showing up. Criticism of the smug. Look at verse 16. I want you to follow along. Verse 16. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors. Now, you probably know how this is going to end, even if you never read it before. These self-righteous Pharisees are always dogging Jesus. Now, I ask, why are they even at this party? I'm not sure why they're even there. I doubt very much that Levi invited them. You didn't hang out with them. They weren't in his contact list. Well, you know, they're there because they're the sin police. And they showed up. And there they are. Now, it's a good thing they're there, really, Because what's going on here is scandalous. They are so bothered by this scandal of grace, and I want you to see this. They're so bothered by this scandal of grace, they have something to say. They just have to say this. And notice what comes next, the end of verse 16. They ask Jesus, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? Wait a minute. Is that what your Bible says? Is that how all this came down? Not exactly. I mean, they are so offended by what they see Jesus doing. They just can't take it any longer that they muster up all the courage they can, and they go to Jesus' disciples to speak of what is bothering them about Jesus. That's what they do. And I noted, well, it's a good thing I don't respond to offenses this way. That's what I said when I read that. Good thing I never do that. Good thing when I'm offended, I go directly to the person. I mean, how often do we go tell someone else how we're offended rather than speaking directly to the one who offended us? They don't go to Jesus. They go to his disciples. Now, legalists found Jesus shocking. Revolting might be more accurate. See, the only thing worse than touching a leper, as Jesus did earlier in the book of Mark, was touching social lepers. What was it about Jesus that made one group, sinners, feel so comfortable, and another group, religious leaders, feel so uncomfortable? I mean, these Pharisees, you got to understand, they were teachers of the law. From all appearances, they set out to obey the law. They did have a commitment to the law of God and observing the law of God. What went wrong? How did a good thing become a bad thing? What went wrong with the Pharisees? Well, they added all kinds of commands to the one God gave. They had like 613 or so commands. They had over 200 do's and over 350 don'ts. They tried to cover all their bases. Remember a cartoon of a Pharisee witnessing, and it said underneath the caption, "Have you heard of the four thousand nine hundred seventy-eight spiritual laws?" <laughs> That's, what That's what it is. It's what it is. Just not four. It's not something simple. They were, as the Mishnah says, "Tradition is a fence around the law." And boy, did they have their fences. Separation was what defined these Pharisees. Their their very name literally means that. They took pride in that they did not come in contact with sinners. So they, like a surgeon getting ready for surgery, scrubbed up really good, made sure they were all clean, not to get involved and perform surgery, but to keep their distance from anything or anyone that would contaminate them. Their concern was for self-preservation. And, folks, that is at odds with Jesus every single time. But I pause and I just ask, is there any Pharisee in me? Is there any Pharisee in you? Are we kind of smug, self-righteous? Now, to their credit, by the way, they do get something right. Their diagnosis of these people in Levi's house that day, that they were sinners, that they were not well. They have that part right. But look at the comeback of Jesus. Why did Jesus accept this invitation to this dinner? Because of verse 17. What we have here in verse 17 is one of the most profound statements, in my opinion, in the Gospels, and one of the most profound statements from the lips of our Lord. He first uses a proverb... A common sense statement that no one could argue with. And then he tells why he came. And this is the best comeback ever. On hearing this, verse 17, Jesus said to them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Now, all would agree that a doctor makes himself available for sick people. I mean, can you you imagine a doctor having as his mission statement, get well, and then I'll see you? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, you call the office, and, and the receptionist asks, well, why do you want to see the doctor today? And, and you say, well, I've had this terrible cough and, and a really high fever, and I, I've been kind of sick with it for several days now. And the receptionist says, oh, so you're sick? You answer, well, yeah, that's why I called Oh, I'm sorry, the receptionist says. The doctor only sees healthy people. And when you get better, I'm sure he'll be glad to see you. That's how it works. That's absurd. Doctors have contact with sick people. Jesus didn't go to those who viewed themselves as healthy. He went to those who weren't well spiritually. Because you see, we're not well. We're not well. Only those who can admit that. Find a cure for it. In a recent 2014 interview, the actor Bill Murray was asked about his current eligible bachelor status. And Murray said it would be nice to have female companion for special events, but he also admitted that he needs to work on himself first. Murray said, there's a lot that I'm not doing that I need to do. Well, when asked what specifically he felt was missing from his life, Murray replied, well, just something, something like like working on yourself or or self-development, just something. I don't have a problem connecting with people. My issue is connecting with myself. And then Murray reflected on what stops us from looking into our own issues. And he says this, what stops any of us is we're kind of really ugly if we look really hard We're not who we think we are. We're not as wonderful as we think we are. It's a little bit of a shock. It's hard. Now, if you dare to look and dare to admit the ugliness inside, then Christ came for you. For those like the Pharisees, the self-righteous, who view themselves as doing okay, Christ has nothing to offer them. Because Jesus goes on to say here, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus' answer to the Pharisees is even stronger than they suspected. He's saying, in essence, not only is it permissible to do what I am doing, it is my purpose. Talk about a Zinger. Follower of Christ. That is our purpose as well. If our Christianity doesn't reach in the lives of others, it's a faith with a hole in it. The mark of a disciple is involvement, not isolation. Now, now please, please do not use this story and Jesus' approach here as an excuse to indulge your sinful appetites. Jesus isn't condoning their behavior, and even though the Pharisees practice isolation, it isn't to be assimilation either. As the saying goes, the boat is to be in the water without the water in the boat. See, this isn't a proof text, by the way, for evangelism dating or doing what everybody else is doing. It's not assimilation, but it's not isolation either. It's involvement. We've got to find the balance. Involvement. And I'm afraid we're we'll swinging it the other way each time. And I ask, do you know someone? Do you know someone who has some resemblance to Levi? You kind of look at that person and you say, he doesn't have a shot. No way she can ever be converted. You know what? Levi wants to have a word with you. (laughs) He wants to say, no one saw my conversion coming. No one. What do others need? What did this dinner guest, Jesus, bring to the banquet? What showed up that day at Levi's house? What do spiritually sick people need? Grace. Grace. One night, many years ago, in London's Wembley Stadium... Several musical groups, mostly rock bands, gathered in celebration of renewed freedom in South Africa. This was many years ago. But for 12 hours, Dire Straits and Guns N' Roses, George Michael, and other rock artists had been blasting the crowd, which was increasingly blitzed in other ways as well. But for whatever reason, the concert's organizers had invited the opera singer Jesse Norman to be the final act. Well, the time comes for Jesse Norman to sing. A single circle of light follows her as she strolls on stage. No backup bands. No musical instruments. Just Jesse. The crowd begins to stir restless. Few recognize the opera diva. A voice in the crowd cries out, More guns and roses! And others take up the cry. The scene's getting ugly. Alone, a cappella, Jesse Norman begins to sing very slowly, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And a remarkable thing happens in Wembley Stadium that night. 70,000 raucous fans fall silent before an aria of grace. And by the time Norman reaches the second verse, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. The soprano had the crowd in her hands." And by the time she reaches the third verse, several thousand fans are singing along, digging far back in nearly lost memories for words they heard long ago. And then the fourth verse. Many dangers, toils, and snares, she sings. I have already come. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Hearing and singing those words, tens of thousands of people experienced God's peace that night over the whole place. What happened that night at Wembley Stadium? When grace descends, the world falls silent before it. The world craves grace. It thirsts for it.